0: You're listening to In-Network,
1: Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe.
2: Hello, and welcome to the In-Network podcast feature Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently chatted with Chris McCarthy, the founder of Innovation Learning Network Coaching and Consulting. Today is part one of our conversation. Chris fell in love with public health and healthcare innovation in the 90s and never looked back. He's been a stalwart proponent of human centered design principles for decades, having co founded Kaiser Permanente's innovation consultancy in the early 2000s and leading it for 14 years. In today's episode, we will talk about Chris's lifelong passion for people, technology, and innovation, and his use of the Commodore 64, but surprising lack of Radio Shack computing in his youth. We'll also discuss business process improvement
1: as a gateway to better design and the birth of technologically enabled population health
2: management. Let's plug in. Chris McCarthy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Very excited to have you here today. I wanted to kind of start off with your background. We were discussing this a little bit earlier. And you said ever since you were a small child, you wanted to be involved with design and innovation in healthcare. And I think you said something around age three. Now, is that accurate or did I get that confused a little bit? You know, I woke up at three with an
0: epiphany. Yeah, no, far, far, far from that. Although I did grow up being in love with technology like very, very early on. Um, I think my dad bought me a Vic-20 Um, and then a Commodore 64, and a lot of people don't remember the Commodore 128. And so I was a very early tech geek, and that, I think, started my accidental discovery of the love of new things and stuff that nobody else was experiencing yet. I just always was attracted to that. Well, let's talk
2: about this. No TRS-80 color computer, it sounds like. No. No, a Commodore 64. That was
0: colored, though. The Commodore 64 was a color computer.
2: And were you were you programming?
0: Were you what kind of programs were you creating? In Basic. Do you remember Basic? Of course. Yeah, for for sure. I would like make little countdown clocks, like war games, and you'd have to guess the code, and yeah, all those really, you know, Matthew Broderick inspired moments. Okay. I'd, I'd like to pretend
2: that I have no idea what we're talking about, but that's 100% how I grew up. So yeah, awesome. So when you went to college, you of course were a computer science
0: major. Far from it.
2: I'm very confused. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I grew up in a very lower socioeconomic neighborhood and family, and I didn't even know that you could major in computer science. Like that didn't even remotely, didn't seem like a possibility, didn't even understand or even know about it. What we did know about were things like, you're gonna be a police officer, you're gonna be a lawyer, you're gonna be a doctor, like some very basic, so I had wanted to be a doctor. And equally, my love of tech, I really did love healthcare. I loved the romantic notion of delivering care. I think that which many, most of the world probably believes in, like, you know, the doctor who's going to get to care for his patients in their home, uh, that kind of romantic notion. But I also was really excited just about health and uh, prevention in general. I loved exercising and I loved all vitamins and all those things as a teenager. So when I went to college, it seemed pre-med was a great place for me to be. But it was also uh, the time of HIV and the AIDS crisis, and as a young gay person, you know, it was a really dark, pivotal time in the '80s. And so, I also got very excited about public health. And I think Randy Shilts and the band played on. I read that book, I think, my freshman year of college, and was like, I am going to be an epidemiologist. Like, I just was enamored with what the epidemiologists were doing and really trying to change the trajectory of HIV. So I ended up not in medical school, but I ended up going for my master's in public health. So two different trajectories, one, this hidden one, the love of tech, and then one very public one, the love of healthcare and uh, public health.
2: That's awesome, and so after your MPH, you did research for a couple years, I think? I did
0: a little, I had a research fellowship where I studied uh, tobacco politics, and so really mapping contributions by tobacco firms against the voting records of politicians, and it was no surprise. Um, Like, everybody took the money, but those who took more of the money usually voted the tobacco way, and it was more of a Republican versus Democrat, even back then, but everybody took the money for sure back then. But yeah, so that was a kind of a fun couple of years of exploring the impact on how policy and contributions and all of that stuff really does affect health. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I'm shocked at what you're telling me, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, I'm trying to remain calm. Yes. Uh, yes. This is this is my calm face. That was the the big dun dun dun. Yeah. So it's downhill on this uh, episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After this, that was the revelation. Was right there. Mm-hmm. And so your first job after
0: that fellowship was at KP, I believe. It was at KP. So I actually started a PhD at Johns Hopkins um, for 24 hours, and 24 hours into it, basically at orientation, I stood up and walked out. Uh, It was supposed to be a PhD in epidemiology, and I kind of credit that with being the first adult decision of my life, is saying no to something that monumental. And all of a sudden, this train track that was in front of me was now missing. And so I didn't know what I was doing next. Uh, My parents were like, come home, you got much farther than we ever thought you would. And then soon after, my best friend was moving to San Francisco, and he's like, you have nothing to do, come with me. So I arrived in San Francisco, got off the plane, and uh, thought I was going to be here for a couple of months. Ended up getting a job at Kaiser Permanente as a temp, just as a um, basically as a secretary. Um, there was a thing back then called Kelly Girls. I don't know if you remember Kelly Girls. I do. It's um, very misogynistic. Horrible. They changed their name, fortunately, but I was a Kelly girl and I got placed at Kaiser. My boss that I worked for very quickly was like... Did your boss say this Kelly girl has
2: a (laughs) master's in public health, which seems unusual?
0: Yes, I hit all of that because I I needed a break. Like I made this monumental decision. I came to San Francisco to experience San Francisco, to have fun, enjoy what the city has to offer. It did get out soon enough. I had a master's in public health I remember back then all the executives got Palm Pilots and none of them knew what to do with them. And so like one night I just set them all up and they were like how, like, how did you do that? Like, how did you get it to connect with Kaiser? And I just like, that was just this little tech background that I like hid and cultivated. And so I think between that and the Masters in Public Health, the department I was in, it could not have been a better landing place for me. And this is kind of one of those universe moments. So this was a department at the national level of Kaiser Permanente focused on bringing technology and public health concepts together. And basically it was population care tools. How can you care for an entire population of diabetics? How do you care for an entire population of of people with heart conditions? And I mean, it was just a, a perfect combination of the two and nobody was doing that stuff back then. So uh, that was my very, basically my first profe- real professional effort at Kaiser, and I was there for 20 years. Wow. So it all started accidentally. Accidentally. I had to say no to Hopkins to get to that next step of public health and tech.
2: And so I, I'm very interested in hearing about how you moved on, but before we get there, yeah. I want to know what was going on at that orientation. Um, what- <laughs> what normal humans take some time to figure out that they made a huge mistake. Yeah. And maybe a semester or two into their PhD program or grad school or whatever it is, you and the first day of orientation. First day. And so what was it that hit you? Yeah. I mean, seriously, because that, I, I wish I had that kind of insight.
0: Yeah, so I did have something that I think a lot of incoming graduate students don't have, and that is I was a lifeguard for 10 years. And I spent the entire summer before getting to the PhD program, staring at the ocean for eight hours a day, obviously looking for people who were drowning, but also like it's a very meditative, deep, like it's a lot of quiet, you're focused, but you're also very peaceful. And as it was going like week after week, I felt something not right. And it took me sitting in that orientation to tap into what was happening to me over the summer, which it, it, it was just it was me implicitly understanding, this was not the right next step for me, like the right next step for many other people. But this was not my path. And um, sitting in that orientation, you know, I, I had the very classic like I mean, I, you know, I was shaking all of, all of the things when you have this big decision to make, and I think I'm about to ruin my life. But um i had the whole summer of thinking and i thought when i got there it would all dissipate it only was validating that this was not the right step for me wow so it had been building and that was really just the it had been of it. building and i think it's, it's also the power of you know we talk about like mental well-being and all the things that are happening right now in 2022 and 2023 and beyond like trying to incorporate these practices into your life i think this is a very early case of what meditation and that spaciousness can do for somebody. And it it did clarify for me, although I did have to move to Baltimore (laughs) and show up to orientation. I wish I actually made the decision before I got there, but at least I didn't sign the loan papers.
1: Yeah. That was a good decision. So you mentioned that at KP, this was kind of the first time that you were introducing technology into population health management. Can you say a little bit about what the sort of state of the art was before you began introducing these technologies and what that offered you a chance to do both on the caregiver side and on the patient side that, you know, hadn't been there before.
0: Yeah, even back then what they were doing and what many were doing still felt state of the art. So it was Excel files and every caregiver, so whether it was the nurse who was monitoring a population or an assistant, they had their own Excel file. And these were elaborate Excel files. I mean, they got a lot of information in them. And the population care coordinator would go through their Excel file start at the top. And they would work their way through their entire population. And then they would start back at the top again. And you know, that might take many weeks or many months to get through everything. And often a physician or a nurse would give the population care coordinator some additional data, and they would enter it into an Excel file. So even that seemed decent but it doesn't tap into bringing it all together so what happens when that person leaves los angeles and moves to san francisco like how does that one line from the excel file get transferred it doesn't get transferred like back then you just started over and often that was a solution for many patients and clinicians would you have a full new intake and you start all over and you start all your care plans all over again. You know, you might ask them about what was happening in the past. This is bumping into the early EHRs. So I was a side project to one of the main projects in this department, which was to bring to life an electronic medical record for Kaiser Permanente. And back then there were several competing electronic medical records happening. There was Epic that was in the Northwest, very simple little system. It was nothing compared to what it is now. There was Oceana, a technology called Wave. And there was a third one called um, CIS from IBM. Those were all being developed and we knew all of them would need population care tools. Like that is kind of the promise of bringing all the data together. So before it was Excel files and the first step to bring it all together was a national database with all of the physicians and population care coordinators having to agree on the data fields. And then what would happen on a daily basis, the care coordinator would get a fax from the database, and it would fax them all of the care needs that a patient who was arriving to the clinic that day needed. So if a diabetic patient was registered for a diabetes appointment, this population care coordinator would get a fax and say they haven't had a foot check, they haven't had an eye check. It would give them all the things to jump right in. And then also once a week, their file would get updated from the national database and keep up in sync if someone changed locations or if they had new members added to it. And that was a big leap forward. Just the fact that that was coordinated. And I remember like, Thinking, wow, fax machine. Even back then, I was like, are we using fax machines? But actually, it was very clever in real time solution because as the patients were arriving that day, the reception and population care coordinators got their pile of things they needed to focus on with those patients who were arriving to the office. So a big leap forward from something that already seemed like a good leap forward too. Just we're starting to bump into the promise of electronic medical records, for sure.
2: Yeah, that was like just in time. As you were describing it, I thought that's actually pretty good. Yeah. And you know, giving me the information that I need the day that the patient's scheduled to come in is today sometimes a difficult thing to get. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And that was all just fax paper. I'm thinking of that shiny fax paper back yeah. in the day, and you took that into the room and saw the yeah. patient, or the nurse did prior to the physician
0: going in. That solves a and problem. immediately, all of the quality scores just dramatically starting going up because no longer did the clinician or the nurse or anybody have to go hunt their paper chart to see what was needed. It was automatically presented to the care team to do the right thing in the right time. So that was also a, a pretty amazing leap forward too.
1: What I find really interesting about this is that you're talking about digitization of the right kinds of information, care continuity, and interoperability—three issues we still are working on today. And it's not a complete circle, obviously. There's progress constantly being made.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that was 1997. Yeah. Which I mean is just remarkable to think that that—that's what was happening even then. Yeah.
2: So clearly, from a design perspective, what you're saying is we need to go back to faxes. <laughs> And I support that. I think that's right. And the major problem is the fax server. We need to go back right. to the paper, because the paper was the that, key.
0: That, oh, yeah, that, that really And you flimsy. could actually mark
2: on it with your fingernail.
1: Not as good as the mimeograph paper. Right. But what I really like uh, about this is, is inherent in your story is this idea that innovation isn't a destination. It's really what you're really doing is constantly looking at how do I take this set of things and apply it in new ways to problems and just keep pushing forward.
0: Absolutely. And with the very things that you have in front of you, like it's not necessarily, you don't have to wait for five years or 10 years for the next thing. Like we had fax machines for sure. Those could be connected to a database pretty easily. That wasn't, compli- it, was, it was complicated, but it was pretty doable. Like these are solutions that were already out there and it was just assembling them and having the political will to say, Well, the hardest part, as I said earlier, was getting everybody to agree just even on, we're gonna call it Mm -hmm. these data fields, that's what we're gonna name them. And these are the 10 things that are most important for all of our patients. We don't care about the differences of LA versus San Francisco or Colorado. What's common for all of them? And so that's the political will. So sometimes it's less about technology and it's more about just really the focus and political will to make the decisions.
1: I know we're gonna come back to this a little bit later in the discussion, but one of the things I I think I hear you saying is, the reason this was so successful is that all of the stakeholders were focused on a particular shared objective. For sure, yeah, for sure. Larger than just process or technology. Yeah,
0: well, you brought up the P word. So I will say that this is where everything kind of fell apart. (laughs) So in some way, the technology like I said, was almost the easiest part of this, but process ends up being quite complicated because workflows, just because of space configuration, all those things are quite different. And part of my role, I would describe as a business process engineer. So really thinking about like, what are the current workflows? And then start thinking about, well, what would be the optimal way of doing this? And we would work Very hard. I would go to clinics and watch people work and interact with the systems and then think about how this fax machine is going to change their lives and then design a whole new workflow. And everybody would be like, this is awesome. They would sign off on it. And then I would come back months later and nobody was doing it. Like everybody was using the fax machine or somehow fitting the technology into their whatever workflows that did work for them and they didn't care about optimizing and they didn't. And I have to say it was deeply dissatisfying to spend all of this time redesigning processes and the ability to implement new processes. I think there's a gap between designing them and then implementing them. And this is where like, I started getting very interested in, like, well, how do you do that? Like, there's gotta be better ways to do this And in some way. And I think I shared this with you before, like, business process engineering is almost like human-centered design, but it's neither human-centered nor designed very well. But they both want the same thing. Like, they're both trying to design something that's valuable and meaningful and doable And I think business process engineering bumped into uh, culture, and that's where I think human centered design does a little bit better job than what business process engineering did in the 90s.
2: Yeah. I just love that you paused a few minutes ago uh, about the P word, (laughs) and I I just want our listeners to realize that if we had commercials, which we don't, (laughs) that's where we would have placed our first commercial, Uh, right after you said, oh, the P word, we would have just had some some right. silence, and then we would have inserted a, uh, some sort of advertisement. For depends. Yeah, for yes. depends or something else. So uh, listeners beware, that might be coming. So you were working at Kaiser Permanente as a business process engineering professional, that's the term that I want to come up with, although it's probably not the term that you use, and you were dangerously uh, close to applying principles that um, have now been called human-centered design. Yeah. And and you thought that, hey, this design thing is a little bit better than what we're doing, but it's still not perfect. And at some point it seems that you were interested in learning what others were doing outside of
0: the Kaiser Permanente system. And so what happened at that point? Yeah. Well, I didn't even know the word design either. So, you know, just like earlier I didn't know about I could have studied computer science. Design was Clothes. That's all it was to me. So I, I didn't even appreciate that there was another way of doing it. All I knew was what I was doing was both interesting, but also dissatisfying. And so I ended up taking night classes at San Francisco State. I took a business ethics class, which just got me really excited about business. Because up until this point, I thought business was a joke and I just thought the worst awful people went into business, to business school. But I'm in this class of very interesting people, really getting deep into ethics, and decided to quit and go back full time. So I ended up uh, back at Rensselaer. So I went to RPI uh, twice, went undergrad, and then I went back there for my MBA. So now this is in 1999 and 2000 where E-commerce is starting to happen. And the word innovation is starting to be said more. And I was in one of the classes and it was Design, Manufacturer and Management, DMM. And as a capstone class for the MBA and the design portion of this blew me away. Like I remember sitting on the edge of my seat as they were showing the original Nightline Ted Koppel shopping cart video from IDEO. Are you familiar with this video? So basically this is a, a about a 18-minute news clip where Ted Koppel challenges IDO, who's this like hot up-and-coming innovation firm, to take something as mundane as the shopping cart and to reimagine it. And I remember watching the IDO team working in this news clip like going and watching people use shopping carts and interviewing them using shopping carts and prototyping and in the back of my head i was like i was doing all of that at kaiser permanente for business process engineering the difference is they were like really connecting with the users in a much more meaningful way than we ever thought of doing for a basic process redesign So, and in my head, I was like, God, this is what I want to do. But also my head was, this is my second master's and it's not in design. I just need to like get excited and let it go and finish my MBA, which I did. I did half in upstate New York, half in Copenhagen Business School. And that also was an important moment because Scandinavia, but especially Copenhagen, has a big design community, has a very strong community value-centric way of thinking about business. So that started planting some future seeds as well. But then I came back to the United States when I finished. The dot-com thing fully imploded. Recession, difficult time. I didn't think I wanted to go back to Kaiser. I kept looking for other places. And after six months, And KP kept saying, please come back. We want you to come back. And finally, I relented. Um, And I'm glad that I did, because uh, within six months of coming back, um, my boss was kind of scratching her head. And she was like, there's this thing called IDO. Never heard of it. I just feel like you'd be somebody who it might jive with. And I was like, that's my brass ring on the merry-go-round. I am never letting go of this brass ring. And uh, that was the rest of my career at Kaiser Permanente. From that point forward, it was human-centered design exclusively as a way of solving complex problems, yeah.
2: Wow, so it, it all went from that video to actually working with Ido. Tell us more about how IDEO worked and, and how you leveraged them while you were at Kaiser Permanente.
0: Yeah, so it started off just as a simple, small, I wanna say it was like a two month project, something very, very simple. There's a woman, uh, her name is Chrissy Zuber, my longtime innovation partner at Kaiser Permanente. Um, she was asked by several executives they had all seen the shopping cart video a few years earlier and it had been percolating like should we do something with IDO so they asked Christy she worked in finance at the time at Kaiser and she was a former nurse she had a nice health background as well to head up this small team to assess could something like human-centered design the way IDO does it can that work in a place like Kaiser Permanente so she's the one who put together the first team So she pinged my boss, and this is where my boss was like, I heard of this thing called, would you be interested? So Christy convened the first meeting. It was me, another woman named Adrienne Philpart, the three of us at a bar in Oakland, California to talk about design and healthcare. The three of us did not know anything about design, and the fact that Christy even convened the meeting in a bar blew my mind. It was so anti what KP normally does that I was like, I am, I, and now I have two brass rings and I don't, what, what's happening here, I never want to end. So the three of us uh, partnered with IDEO. It was supposed to be for a few months. It was two years. So there was four of them and three of us full time for two years. Like we basically had an apprenticeship like in human centered design and it was the same four people from IDEO as well. So they had an apprenticeship of what it was like we were one of their first clients of not just co-creating with, but transferring their abilities into our organization. So at the end of that two years, the ball was rolling to create our own department and to grow the department. And each year we were designing more and more uh, solutions to complex challenges. It just kept going. But it was a really special time. I'm not sure anybody could afford to do a two-year endeavor with any design firm these days, but back then it was a really special moment.
1: You mentioned you were a part of an innovation team at Kaiser. Yeah. What was innovation or how were you thinking about innovation and, and then once you had begun to get some of those ideas about doing human-centered design, how did those two things intersect?
0: Yeah, I would say It was more starting with human-centered design than starting with innovation in general. So I, as I said, like I was on, you know, on the corner edge of my seat during that Ted Koppel Nightline clip. And it was how the work was being done that was most interesting to me. And when we started our work at Kaiser Permanente using human-centered design approaches we employed those exact same methods, like really engaging users. To me, that was innovative. Like, what it later became as our sophistication level came up, the way we even talk about innovation became smarter and smarter, we realized that we were creating novel solutions that were providing deep value because we were rapidly scaling them across the entire system. But that in some way was after the fact. So those first two years, we didn't even have a name for ourselves. We were all donated from different departments. I was donated from the electronic medical record. It was called KP Health Connect. We were just getting going with Epic. So I was donated from them to make sure that we don't innovate away from Epic. Christy was donated from finance. Adrian was donated from organizational development and design. So we were all coming together to try to create better ways for Kaiser, and at the time it was Kaiser Nurses, that was our first few projects, for Kaiser Nurses to do their work. Can it be more joyful? Can the patients get more satisfaction for how we're doing this work? And towards the end of that, we understood we were innovating, and that became, our name was the Innovation Consultancy. But we didn't start with, we need to innovate we said we have a problem, like nurse communications are a challenge. Medication administration is a challenge. Let's build something new. And it was later they said, oh, we're innovators.
1: (laughs) I know we'll dive into this deeper, but what I like about what you're saying is that there was an aspect of the design that was really focused on the process and making that as efficient as possible and as joyful as possible. But there was also an eye on value to the organization as well. And so, two goals, both of which were being driven by this process in methodology.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I would say there was a very explicit goal that we needed to add value. Like that was clear. Like, why do you exist in an organization if you don't provide value? But then there was a very selfish value goal that I think both all three of us, Adrian, Christy and I, we knew that this is how we wanted to work the rest of our lives. And so we were surely going to implement and do everything that we could to bring this to life and add value to Kaiser Permanente, for sure. So there was an organizational goal for sure, but we were also individually driven because we were so passionate that this would make a huge difference in the way that we understand clinicians, how we understand patients, and how we can design things that truly meet their needs like we really implicitly felt that so a little bit of selfish but a lot of organizational reasons that scale up was so important to this want to hear more of our conversation with
2: chris mccarthy make sure to
0: plug in for the rest
2: of our interview releasing soon for more information about innovation learning network consulting and coaching check out iln.org.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.